Father, uh, here we gather again, and we are blessed with the freedoms that this country gives us to be able to look at your word and, and study it and not be hindered in that. We ask you, Father, to open our hearts and our minds, our, our eyes uh, on a subject that, um, quite frankly, is difficult, I think difficult for all of us probably, and uh, we want to connect better, God. We want to do life together in deeper and more meaningful ways, and for that to happen, our subject this morning needs to be something that we grow in. So guide us in this time of study for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. So as I've already hinted, you know, we've been in this series about doing life together. And uh, there's a passage that I want to look at that I ran across recently in my reading that, that really just jumped out at me. You know, God has always been about the business of helping us communicate to one another. God is always about the business of helping us have what we might call crucial conversations. And uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, we come across this paragraph and something that really jumped out to me. Let's see if it jumps out to you as we read it. Uh, see if you uh, can pick up on this. This is, this is what the writer of Leviticus, what Moses said. He said, do not go about spreading slander among your people and do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, those last words we're pretty familiar with because Jesus picked up on them himself on one occasion when he was teaching, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but the phrase that jumped out to me, I don't know if it jumped out to you, was this phrase, rebuke your neighbor frankly. Did that grab your attention at all when we were reading that? So I'm, I'm just curious, how many of you do that? <laughs> Apparently not a single one of you. Uh, how many of you, you know, go next door and say, neighbor, you know, your dog is barking incessantly. I wish you would do something about that. It's become irritating, and so I needed to let you know so that we wouldn't have these barriers between us. Or neighbor, what were you thinking when you painted your house that color? You know, did you get approval from the HOA? Or, or uh, neighbor, look, uh, you know, your trees, they need to be trimmed. They're, that one of them's growing over the fence and into my... I'm, yeah, we, we don't really do this, but we do talk about it, don't we? I wish that neighbor would so on and so forth. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, um, this thing of rebuking our neighbor um, and what that means. And uh, I want to talk about why we need to rebuke our neighbor, frankly. And I want to talk about how we are supposed to go about uh, rebuking our neighbor, frankly. And then I'm going to ask you to make a commitment today to rebuke your neighbor, frankly. Are you up for this? There's a good reason why we do need to be committed to this. Um, and let's dive right in. Here we go. So let's start with the why. Why on earth would we do this? Why does it matter so much that we rebuke our neighbor, frankly? There's a terrific book by a man named Joseph Greeny that I'm very indebted to for this message, uh, in fact. And it's called Crucial Conversations. Fascinating book. Uh, it really gets at the need to do what the Bible calls rebuking our neighbor, Frankly, the idea is that in any relationship, there will be certain moments that have kind of a, a disproportionate impact on that relationship. In other words, these are critical moments in the relationship. And, and depending on what you do or don't do, it will affect your character. It will affect the relationship itself. It will affect your spiritual life. And we all know about this. 
Uh, let's say you're at work and somebody comes up to you and they're concerned about a person who reports to you, right? And they say, hey, you know, what's going on with this, this person and, and your oversight of them? You seem to be letting them get away with murder. They don't seem to be meeting their goals. You're not really holding them accountable, nor are you supervising them appropriately. You know, what do you say in a moment like that? That's a crucial conversation that needs to happen. Do you get defensive? Do you become silent? Do you power up on them and maybe go on the attack? Uh, what you do at that moment in time is actually uh, a crucial conversation. Or uh, you go to a party and you're, you're with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse or whatever, and you observe as you watch them interact with others, man, they're talking way too much. Do they not see this? Do they not know this? I mean, there's on and on and on. They're way out there, normal, more than normal, and they don't seem to see what's happening. And then when you get in the car and you're headed home, uh, they just think they were the life of the party, but your perception was, yeah, no, they were more the, the brunt of a lot of foolishness, and uh, they think that they were just having an incredible time. What do you say? How do you say it? Do you even bring it up? Crucial conversation. Or you bring the man of your dreams home to meet your mom and your dad, and it's real clear that as far as your dad's concerned, this is not the man of his dreams for you. Right? And so what do you say? How do you handle that? How do you bring up that subject? How is that going to go down? It's a crucial conversation that needs to happen. Or you're in a life group and there's somebody else in that group that drives you crazy. I know this is hypothetical. This couldn't possibly happen in our church, but there's somebody there that drives you crazy and they talk too much or they're, they're too opinionated or they're sarcastic or they're abrasive, whatever you, what do you do? What do you say to that person? Um, or here, here's one, your, your mom has just kind of gotten to a place where there are a lot of needs in her life. And, and, and so over the holidays, you schedule kind of heroically, in fact, a lot of time to go home and just be with her and be there and love on her and be in, empathetic and uh, sacrificially attentive morning till night, what have you. But when it comes time for you to leave, your mom's kind of upset. She feels you never stay long enough. You never do. You're always too busy. What do you say in that moment? How do you have that that interaction, that exchange, what do you talk about? Now, the point is this. There will be certain moments uh, in every relationship, uh, depending on the depth of that relationship, and the way you respond, what you say or what you don't say is either going to build a bridge or it's going to build a wall. And uh, these are crucial conversations that we need to have. They're what the Bible talks about, when it, exactly what the Bible means when it talks about rebuking your neighbor, frankly. It's a crucial conversation. In the book uh, by Joseph Greeney, he says there's three ways you can identify a crucial conversation. Uh, crucial conversations always involve things that are high stakes, not, not menial. I know, you know, the examples I gave about the neighbor, the dog barking, whatever, that may or may not be a crucial conversation. But crucial conversations are high stakes. They're not about trivial things. They always involve opposing opinions. You see it one way, they see it another. So there's opposing opinions. And then there's, generally speaking, strong emotions attached to it. And in the Bible, we see crucial conversation after crucial conversation. In fact, you could even say the Bible is a book primarily of crucial conversations. The very first crucial conversation occurs when the first sin occurs. The man and the woman disobey God. Uh, and they eat the fruit, and they want to have their, their eyes open. Why? Because they want to be like God. That was the temptation, you remember. If you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. And so community is broken when they do this. And what we see is so interesting. God initiates a crucial conversation. Uh, the very moment that God initiates communication with Adam and Eve, where does he find them? They're hiding. Yeah. 
The man tries to avoid the conversation. He, in fact, hides in order to not have the crucial conversation. And so if God hadn't pressed the issue, how long do you think the man would have continued hiding? He'd still be hiding. Now, why is that? Is that because he's a man? I detect a biased opinion. Yeah. You know, it's not really because he's a man, because who's hiding right next to him? That's the woman, yeah. They're both hiding. They're both hiding. The problem isn't gender. The problem is sin in, all, in both genders. It's not like there's many, many genders. But the very first uh, crucial conversation, uh, it's, it's interesting, in Genesis 3, is a high-stakes conversation. Life and death stuff here. Uh, there are real opposing opinions, you see. The question is, who gets to be God? And God thought he should be God. And Adam and Eve thought, no, they should be God. Or at least equal to him. And, and so very strong emotions surround this. Uh, there's desire, there's shame, there's fear, there's anger. And one of the results of sin is always a desire to avoid having crucial conversations. Or to have it in a bad way. But here's the deal. The health of a community is a function of the lag time between identifying and discussing these problems, you see. Uh, how much of a gap is there between when I'm aware, oh, we have a problem, and when I actually bring it up and we talk about it? If there's a long, long lag time, well, the community is perhaps not that healthy. This passage in Leviticus 19 is fascinating. The wisdom here is, is really quite astute. It says, do not hate your brother. That is your fellow Israelites. Some translations make it. The idea is you're, you're, um, this one who is among the people with you. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. And uh, there's a connection between those two statements because if you don't rebuke your neighbor, frankly, you'll end up hating him in your heart. Uh, this even happens in little ways, when, when little things happen between you and someone else. And if you don't find a way to process those, you can either forgive them, that's one way, you just completely forgive them, and you just move on. But if you marshal these, if you hold these, if you keep these, these little wrongs, these things that trouble you, and you hold them, then what might have been something very minor in the beginning becomes something uh, that you tend to, to store up, and they become greater and greater issues. And we see this clearly in the second crucial conversation in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain is mad at his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice had been accepted by God and his had not, right? And Cain feels slighted. He feels angry. He's envious. He's jealous of his brother. God does such an interesting thing. Again, in the second crucial conversation in the Bible, uh, God initiates it. God comes to Cain. God is the expert, the master at initiating these conversations. And in the text, it says this. This is Genesis 4, 5. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, of course, God's not confused about this. It's not like God doesn't know what's going on. He absolutely does. But God here is giving Cain the opportunity to open up his heart, to have a raw conversation, and to talk about what's really going on. And again, this is, um, this is why having crucial conversations is so critical. If you don't talk about it, you will eventually act it out. If you don't talk about it, you'll eventually act it out. 
If you know this story, that's exactly what Cain does. He does not talk to God about it. He shuts down. And that, frankly, too, uh, think about it. What, what is prayer? Well, prayer is at least in part taking uh, what is deepest, what is darkest, what is the most raw in my heart and having an honest conversation with God about it. Because here's the interesting thing about God. God welcomes even those conversations. God welcomes what, if there's something dark, something deep, something difficult, something raw going on in my life, God welcomes me having a conversation with him about that. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. But if I don't do that, then I, something poisons the heart. And what was at first not so serious becomes very, very serious. Um, you know, I would just also add as an aside, you know, if your prayer life feels stilted or not alive or purely formal, it's probably because you don't bring what's really going on in your heart to God. You don't have those honest conversations. And if I don't talk these things out with God, then uh, with another person, uh, perhaps even as well as God would lead, very likely what I'm going to do is I'm going to act on it. I start pulling back. I start, you know, giving a cold shoulder or it translates to my face and, or to uh, kind of nonverbal communication. I'll go into that kind of gossip mode, slander mode, make sure others agree with me about this person and what I don't like about them. And all of that, all of that destroys connection and it destroys community, something for which Jesus died, something uh, which Jesus wants to, us to be all about because he was all about creating connection and community, wants us to be about it. And with Cain, of course, the, the, this is very tragic. He ends up killing his brother, as you know. And this is why crucial conversations matter. This is why they are critical. When we sense that there's something between us and someone else and that a crucial conversation is required, we have simply got to decide to have that crucial conversation. Now, how do we go about having them? The how is really important. In Leviticus 19, um, verse 17 is helpful here. It says, rebuke your neighbor frankly. Uh, it's helpful to note that each word in this command uh, actually tells us something important about this process. The first word is rebuke, and this is kind of a difficult thing to do for most folks. Some people will do it with a little too much enthusiasm. Uh, but for most people, it's just difficult, and we try to avoid it. I'd, I would rather avoid this at any, any price, at all costs. But rebuking, you see, is, is we just have to know right out of the gate it's something that's going to be awkward. It's not something most people enjoy. The other person may not like it. This is especially important in churches. Often in churches, people suffer from uh, terminal niceness, and, and problems don't really get resolved because of this. Uh, they will not tell the truth because they confuse loving somebody with hurting their feelings. Uh, but to be clear on this, to love someone does not mean that you avoid hurting their feelings. Sometimes the only way to move the relationship to a healthy place and to move things forward is to have these crucial conversations. We're reading this book by Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And uh, it's just full of incredible wisdom and insight. And Bonhoeffer says this, he says, reproof is unavoidable. He's talking about in the context of connection and community and doing life together, reproof is unavoidable. In fact, nothing can be more cruel than the, quote, tenderness that consigns another to his sin. 
In other words, we see that there's something broken. We see that they're moving in a direction that's not going to be helpful to them or not, not helpful to uh, the community. And, you know, what, what are you going to do with that? Are you just going to ignore it and be okay with that? He says, nothing can be more compassionate than to serve rebuke that calls another back from the path of sin. And the point is, you know, do I love you enough to talk with you in a moment of crucial conversation, to talk when it's hard or when it's awkward or when it's really the last thing you want to do? And here's the deal. All the time, stuff happens in relationships. And the more you're together with someone, the more stuff happens. Yes? Yeah. And uh, there's a ding here, here or a ding there, and there's an awkward moment. There's a disconnect. Something is said or done that's a, a little bit off or, or hits you slightly the wrong way. And, uh, you know, always in those moments, you, you can either choose to have a crucial conversation or, or you can choose to forgive it and move on. But it's really important that if you forgive it and move on that you really do just that. You forgive it and you move on, you see. Uh, little things can happen, and we're not supposed to take up every little issue of irritation that we have with someone. If it's a one or a two, forgive it and move on. But, but let's say you don't forgive it and you log it. You know what I mean by log it, right? And we think, you know, maybe I'm just being too sensitive. Maybe it's my fault that I felt this way. I don't want to talk about this with them. Uh, I don't want to bring up such a little thing. I feel stupid doing that and so on, but I log it instead of forgive it. And when I do that, there is now this little... Well, it's like a wedge. It's like a, it's like a sliver, a dagger in the heart. And it's there even though it's tiny. And it's irritating. And I start to look at this person a little differently when the next ding happens and then the next and, and then the next. And then there's, uh, you know, just this, this sense of I, I really am starting to not even like being around this person. And I want to shrink back from having conversation with them. And I realize that if in a sober moment, a spiritually sober moment, I, I realize, you know, I'm not doing this out of love for the person. I'm shrinking back, not out of bravery, not out of love, but out of cowardice. And especially this happens in families. It happens in, in marriages. This happens over and over and over again until the little ones and the twos that we ignore become greater irritants. They become fours and fives, and eventually they become eights and nines. And before you know it, it feels pretty much like love has died. And one person says to another, not just, I don't love you anymore, but I never loved you. And really, that's not true. And certainly, that's death to the soul when you hear something like that. What happened was a thousand little ones and twos that we never processed properly, that never got talked about. A thousand little moments where intimacy and love could have been fought for, but weren't. And so they build up over time. And eventually, love dies. And it kills community, of course. You see, I have to rebuke. I, I have to have the, the hard conversations. I have to have the courage to speak. Otherwise, love dies and so does community. That's the why of, of why we do this, why we have crucial conversations. We don't get to, if we want to follow Jesus, we don't get to say no to these kinds of conversations. But also, it's the how part, and it, this is really important. We have to get good at doing this. Uh, this is not community 101. This is advanced community, I, I admit. Leviticus 19 is God's command for the whole nation of Israel. When you react, uh, interact with each other, when you have communication with each other, uh, he says to them, I, I want you to rebuke. 
because you're my people. You're going to speak the truth to one another. God says, rebuke, talk, resolve issues that need to be resolved. Um, if uh, we, we can't really stop with that, that one word rebuke when we talk about this, because there are some folks in the room where your problem isn't that you don't rebuke. Your problem is you love rebuking. Uh, you're, you think rebuking is your spiritual gift. You like to do it recreationally. In fact, your motto for life is rebuke until you puke. And, uh, and that's not good. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Leviticus says you'll notice rebuke your who? Neighbor. Understand that's a loaded Bible word right there. That's a loaded word. Your neighbor is not the person you hate or want to get even with or want to destroy. Your neighbor is not your enemy, you see. Now, the truth is you might have to have a hard conversation with somebody that you tend to think of as your enemy, somebody you're at odds with at the moment. But the goal for anyone who follows Jesus in communication with other people is to win them over to God for their good and, and also to win them over in relationship to be your friend. Jesus said, love your neighbor, but he also said, love your enemy. The same thing for both. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. When the Bible talks about your neighbor, uh, it's not limited to the person who lives in the room or the condo or the apartment or the house or whatever next to you. That's, that's not the definition of neighbor. It's whatever person God happens to bring across your path at any given moment. That's your neighbor. In our day, very often, our neighbors are primarily the people we interact with at school or the people we interact with at work. That's, that's our neighbor. Uh, often, you might not even know the name of the person who lives next to you. Hopefully, you do, but you might not, but you know the names of the people with whom you work. What does it look like at work if people don't rebuke their neighbor, that coworker, and if they don't do it frankly? What does it look like? give you a picture of this. Uh, this is Joseph Greeny tells about a consulting situation that he was in with a young leadership team. And they brought him in uh, because they were experiencing some problems. And he says that uh, by lunch on the first day of a two-day offsite that they were having, every single member of that team had pulled him aside to tell them who the real problem was. And uh, he says that frequently happens at these offsites with these businesses. Uh, people will pull them aside and privately say, if you really want to know what's going on around here, so-and-so is the problem, you see. And in this case, it was interesting because everybody said the same thing, that the real problem was Lisa, yeah? And everybody knew that the real problem on the team uh, was this one person, except, of course, who? Yeah, Lisa didn't know. And so the first day, they talked about communication and team building and trust and all that great stuff. The second day, they talked about strategy and alignment and other great stuff. And Lisa was joining in with confidence and, and though she knows that, as though she knew she was a big contributor to the team, while other members of the team are kind of angry, kind of seething, kind of thinking, you know, wow, doesn't she know? Finally, a guy named Jeff kind of erupts and says what everybody else is thinking. And says, Lisa, you're a jerk. You never get your work done on time. That's what he said. And suddenly, as you can imagine, whoo, dead silence. Everybody's looking, looking down at their shoes. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to make eye contact. Very awkward. And Joseph Grinney uh, walks over to a whiteboard, and he writes in the upper left-hand corner, Lisa, you're a jerk, okay? He writes that up there. And then he writes in the lower right-hand corner, 
and you never get your work done on time. Those two statements. And he says, now, guys, we're going to get back to this statement. Lisa, you're a jerk. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's start with this one down in the lower right. You never get your work done on time. And again, advanced community, right? These are crucial conversations. And a lot of times, especially in churches, when somebody says something tough, everybody in the group wants to pile on and rescue the victim, right? Uh, and pile on the guy who spoke the, in this case, harsh truth. And uh, the problem never really gets addressed. Uh, we, we love rescuing victims. But Greeny says this. We'll, we'll come back to this, Lisa, you're a jerk phrase. But first, let's deal with the Lisa, you never get your work done on time. And he asks the group there, he says, is this true? Does Lisa not get her work done on time? And everybody's looking still at their shoes and avoiding eye contact. This is awkward, obviously. Who wants to do this? But uh, nobody answers. And so Greeny says, okay, we're just going to go around the table here. And uh, no sugarcoating it, yes or no answers. Does Lisa get her work done on time? And they go around the table and say, no, 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 she doesn't. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. And then Lisa, who is obviously humiliated and mortified, says, I can't believe you guys wait until we get on a retreat in front of a stranger to tell me this. It's clear you've all felt this way for some time. And no one has said a word to me. Why didn't you say something, she asks. And then somebody asked her, well, you know, Lisa, is there something going on at home maybe, something troubling you? See, it's bail out the victim. You know, not addressing the issue, bail out the victim. And she says, no, no, that's not what's going on. She says, you know, we have grown in our business by one-third in the last year, but I have no more resources. You're all coming to me with more and more and more communication needs, but I have nobody to help me. So I just put my head down, and I'm working harder and harder and harder and getting further and further behind. And the CEO, who's a part of this meeting, says, you know what? If I had known that, we have been growing. We have some resources. We could help out with this. And so Grinny's story is kind of interesting because the problem is actually solvable. And most problems usually are. And, and so much of the toxicity had gone out of that moment at this point in the, in the conference room that when it was time to get back to what Jeff said, you know, uh, Lisa, you're a jerk. Uh, Jeff jumped right in himself and said, Lisa, uh, I just want to say, uh, I'm the jerk, not you. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry for what I said and how I said it. I'm frustrated with you because when we come together, usually we're all up to date, but you're not. But you see, now solutions were being talked about. And, and two, it just a, kind of a hit me that, you know, sometimes in the workplace, um, it does a better job of spiritual formation than the church does, than we do in the church. Uh, because that became a, a good conversation. That crucial conversation uh, went in the right direction. Now, maybe another way of saying that too is that God is always at work to form our character in our spiritual lives, no matter where we are, whether that's at work or at school or whether it's in the church. And here's the point. We as Jesus followers want to get better at this, want to get gooder and gooder and gooder at this. We really do. We need to. Um, Rebuke, yes, absolutely essential. But remember, I'm rebuking my neighbor. I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this with somebody that I really want to bless. I'm, I want to see them grow. I want to see them uh, be a friend. And so I'll ask God for skill. I'll ask God for help. I'll ask God for empathy and not a spirit of judgmentalism or a spirit of contempt, you see. That's what's behind this statement that we read in Leviticus. Rebuke your neighbor frankly. 
Now, that word frankly, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, This is another huge issue in churches because I'd rather rebuke obliquely. I'd rather rebuke uh, indirectly or subtly. I'd rather rebuke through a third party. Do you know how often pastors are used as third parties to rebuke somebody? People will come to you. Do you know what so-and-so is doing? You should go talk to them. Oh, really? Really, I should. Uh, people have said to me when I've tried to, you know, turn them around, no, no, you go talk to them. They say, well, you know, when I start talking about uh, something uh, difficult or a sensitive issue, uh, it's kind of a crucial moment. I get all nervous. I I can't think of the right words to say. I usually say something badly or I say it wrong or I get angry or I get defensive. No, 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 you should go tell them. But here's what's interesting. Research actually shows that even people who think they're real bold in this area, have a problem doing what the Apostle Paul tells us all to do, which is speak the truth in love to one another. We all have a problem with this. There's some rather comical research that's been done on it. Uh, I mean, we know this to be true personally, but it's, it is, as I've said many times, it's always hilarious to me to see how research catches up to the, what the Word of God says. Um, there's a hilarious uh, video on YouTube. Uh, I wish I could show it to you. It's not there anymore. I don't know why they pulled it, but... Uh, Uh, It was Joseph Grinney's 12-year-old son, Sam. So the best I can do is describe it to you, and it's so funny, I I want to. So what what they do is um, Sam does this little experiment to find out how early in life kids learn to smooth over relationships by lying, okay? Because you think this might just be an adult problem? Yeah, I guess again. So uh, Sam, what Sam does, he gets first and second graders, right? Little kids. And... um, He wanted to see if they would tell him the truth, especially when they think it might hurt his feelings. So he made these brownies, lots of chocolate, lots of eggs, lots of flour, but instead of sugar, salt, straight up salt. These were the worst brownies ever made, okay? And then he recruited these kids for a taste test, and he told them that he wanted them to compare ordinary brownies, which were normal, good, ordinary brownies, to his special brownies, a recipe had come down from his dear dead grandmother, Right, And these are the special brownies that his whole, whole family just loves. And then also to rather endear them to him, he gave each one of the students a dollar. Okay, So these students are feeling good about all this. So first they eat the yummy sugar brownies. And uh, you know they're delicious. They can't wait to try the special brownies that are going to be way better. But these are salt bricks, you understand. And so he gives them the salt bricks. And the poor kids, when you watch the video... They can barely keep from, you know, just spitting it out right in front of them. But they don't want to do that because, you know, these are his grandmother's special brownies. But they're practically gagging. But will they tell Sam the truth and possibly offend him? In the end, there were were about a dozen uh, little students that he worked with. How many of them do you think told him these brownies are awful? They're inedible. No one. Nobody told him. Your grandmother's brownies stink. Nobody said it, but they all thought it. And here's the thing. We've all participated in this experiment. We've all been a member of that family. We've all been a member of that church. Everybody knows the brownies stink. Everybody except the brownie maker. Everybody talks about it in the hallways. Everybody talks about it with each other. They just do not rebuke the brownie maker, frankly. They hate his brownies in their hearts, but they won't tell them. You know, once upon a time, pastors always used to stand out front and say goodbye to people when they would leave, right? 
And uh, everybody always says the same thing. Oh, thank you, Pastor. It's good to see you. It's a great sermon. It was a good. Ser- thank you, Pastor. And, you know, sometimes I, I do think I preach great sermons. I mean, you know, God, you know, forgive me, but I do sometimes think that. But other times I know, man, that sucked. That was, <laughs> woo, I can't believe I made him sit through that. And people will come through, and it doesn't matter which sermon we're talking about, you, you say the same things because you don't want to hurt my feelings or, you know, why do we do this? Why do we not speak the truth in love? When the Bible is really clear to us that that's what we are supposed to do. I, I think partially and, and maybe in large measure, it's because we've kind of bought a lie. I think there is a lie out there that the evil one gets us to believe. And it's basically this, that I, I need to choose between telling the truth or keeping a friend. And that's a lie. The truth really is, uh, what it comes down to is if I, I choose not to tell the truth in order to keep a friendship, I guarantee that that friendship will be shallow because the truth can't be spoken between us, you see. And uh, this is so different than the wisdom of the writers of Scripture. Uh, This was said thousands of years ago. Think how wise this is. Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Think how true that is. Do you have a friend that will wound you in love? Boy, if you don't, you need one. In other words, you see, it's better, too, to have a wound, a painful truth from a friend that can lead me to become the man God wants me to be than to have lots and lots and lots of flattering words that will make me feel better or avoid causing me pain but won't help me grow at all, won't help me become more of who Jesus wants me to be. And as in so many areas, you know, Jesus is the master of this thing of having crucial conversations. Think about it. Over and over and over again, when he is with people, he has really, really difficult conversations with them. Uh, The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. He has a difficult conversation with them, a crucial conversation. Uh, Peter is telling Jesus, no, 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 Jesus, bad idea. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't lay down your life. Jesus turns around and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You think that was a crucial conversation? Wow. Uh, The Pharisees. Jesus' interactions with Pharisees, as you watch the progression of his interactions with the Pharisees, his comments get more and more blunt, more and more difficult, actually. He's having a crucial conversation with them. He's, in essence, telling them, you are sinning. You say you love my father, but you don't even know me. I'm sent from the father. And he, he just is very blunt with them has crucial conversations with him. One time, a guy who is known as the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to affirm his spiritual life. You know, he's known in the community as a real pious, pious individual, and this guy sees himself as very devout, very godly. In other words, his brownies are so good, but they're not, not really. A lot of salt in them, really. And so this guy comes to Jesus in Mark 10, and, and uh, this is what we read. I was going to just put uh, a little bit of this up here, but I thought I'd read the whole thing. As Jesus and his, and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named, whoops, wrong one, sorry. Um, I'll get to that one in a second. The, uh, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is having this conversation with the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler is asking him, what, what do I need to do, teacher, in order to have eternal life? And he's already pretty convinced he's got it. But why not get affirmation of that, you know, from, from Jesus, from the rabbi? And, and we read this in verse 17. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. And it says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come follow me. 
It's so interesting to me what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, oh, man, you're doing great. Oh, you're on the right track. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Just keep up the good work. You're, you'll get there. Just keep up the good work. Instead, Jesus has a crucial conversation. Jesus throws down the gauntlet and really points to the one thing in the guy's life that was most keeping him from God, and that was all his stuff. He loved that more than he loved God and more than he wanted to follow Jesus, even though it was very difficult. And, and this conversation has the potential to change this guy's life. I wish we knew exactly what happened to this rich young ruler. We don't know if he came back and had more conversations. We don't know if he started following Jesus. We don't know. But we do know this, Jesus had this conversation with him because he loved him. Because he loved him. And that's the big point. One time there was a woman named Martha in Luke 10, and Jesus is at her home, and her sister Mary is listening to Jesus, you remember, and Martha's in the kitchen, she's making brownies, and she's mad at Mary. She's upset at Mary. But so interesting, she doesn't go talk to Mary. She goes to Jesus, the rabbi, and she says this, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her uh, to help me. And it's interesting, Jesus won't do it. Uh, In John chapter 11, verse 5, there's this little phrase that's important for us as we have this conversation. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. That would be Mary. So Jesus loved Martha and Mary. That's the context. And here in Luke 10, Jesus rebukes Martha, frankly. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You know, you're busy making brownies, and that's great, but you could be in here, and you're not. And you need this more than we need that you see, would be what he's saying. Can you imagine if Jesus didn't have crucial conversations with his disciples, with the religious leaders, with you, with me? You know what? If he didn't, the New Testament wouldn't exist. It really wouldn't because most of the New Testament is recording for us things that Jesus said, things that Jesus taught, usually in the context of some crucial conversation. And here's the deal. We see this in Jesus' life. We don't have crucial conversations in spite of love. We have crucial conversations with people because of love. Leviticus says, rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. And the idea there is that if you see uh, somebody headed in a spiritually destructive direction and you don't say anything, you don't offer any help at all, then in some sense we share in the guilt. And there's always discernment needed in that, isn't there? Some people make it very clear to you they don't want to hear what you have to say, so that's probably not the situation we're looking at here. But this is someone with whom you have a relationship and you see them moving in a difficult direction or a hurtful direction, and because of awkwardness, you choose not to say anything. Not a good thing. Now, here, here is something else we need to just think about in closing. Um, and that is that we never enter into these conversations. We never want to enter into them alone. Never want to enter into them alone. We want to enter into these conversations with the master of crucial conversations, with Jesus. And that means we do it with lots of humility and lots of prayer. It's even 
possible that you go to somebody who's a mentor, somebody you love, somebody who could speak well into this situation and ask them, does this sound right when I'm about to share with this person that I care about or am I off base? But we don't go into these conversations alone. You want to have people praying for you. You, you need uh, good advice sometimes, good wisdom, maybe a different perspective. But understand, God does call us to enter into these conversations with courage and love and trust and confidence. And the question always is, will I do it? Because, you know, here's the thing too. Who is it that God is calling you to have a crucial conversation with? Most of us have someone. If you don't have one now, you will soon. And then the question is, will I do it or will I just let distance exist? Will I just let walls be built? Will I be okay with those walls? Something that Jesus is never okay with, with you. He's always pursuing you. He's always wanting to have the crucial conversation with you. And he will do it graciously and he will do it humbly, but he will do it. Thank God he will do it. He was the master at rebuking his neighbor frankly. And he calls us to enter into this so that we can have community and connection with each other that isn't just surfacey stuff. So are you excited about this? <laughs> You're the congregation that lies, yeah. None of us are excited about this. This is not exciting stuff. Um, but it's what we're called into. We're, we're called into community that reflects who Jesus is, not really who we are. So, so listen to God, you know. Who is it that God is calling you to have a crucial conversation with? And if somebody comes to mind, have that conversation. And let Jesus be with you. Let Jesus guide you. Let Jesus give you wisdom. Amen. Father, we, uh, we thank you uh, that in this whole series that we've been together in talking about connection and community, we thank you for what you are doing and have done. We thank you for our friendships and our relationships. And we just confess, God, we're, we're prone to slander. We're prone to gossip. We're prone to avoid awkward conversations. We are prone to do things not the way Jesus does them with us. And please forgive us. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with love for our neighbor. Fill us with perspective to help us see the people around us as our neighbors. And God, move us collectively and individually in the direction of being the kind of community that would just honor and delight Jesus. Help us to have the awkward, crucial conversations one with another. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.